Hi, it's Dan from Desert Island Dicks. Today's episode features comedian and writer Sanjeev Kohli, and uh, it's a it's a good episode. Uh, not because of anything I do, so I'm not being immodest here. I'm just saying he's a great guest, um, and so you know, great guests make for great podcasts. He's funny and intelligent. Those two things are, are you know really good qualities to have in a, a sort of comedy podcast guest. I always find so. Uh, yeah, hope you enjoy it. As always, if you could subscribe to this podcast, if you enjoy it, you'd like to leave us a review or a rating, that's always really helpful, so we always appreciate it if you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And um, I'm just going to keep it short and uh, just get into it. Here's our guest, Sanjeev Kohli on Desert Island Dicks. Hi, I'm Dan Benedictus and welcome to Desert Island Dicks, the show that sees you marooned on a desert island after a plane crash with the worst people and worst things imaginable. Who they are and why they're a dick is up to our guest and here to share their Desert Island Dicks with us today is actor, comedian and writer Sanjeev Kohli. How are you doing? I'm good and congratulations on the correct pronunciation of my first name because <laughs> see, when, when you're Asian like what I am, um, you have the sort of Indian stroke, Pakistani stroke, Bangladeshi pronunciation of your name. Mm. And then you've got the anglicized version, which just makes it easier for people. And so my mom will call me Sanjeev, like you just did. But most people on desks will call me Sanjeev, which I'm equally happy with. Happy with. But I'm very impressed that you that you knew to say that. How did you know? I grew up in Leicester. So, oh, there uh, you go. There you go. Yeah. So you are, you, you are basically Asian then. Because what what happens is is there's there's so much Asian DNA in Leicester that it can't it it can only osmote into you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so just grew up with lots of Asian friends, and you know it's like you know at college it would be I think I was a minority at college, so you know kind of it's quite (laughs) a healthy thing to me. What's hilarious about Leicester is because I've got cousins in Leicester, of course I do, uh, and I come from a Sikh family, and there's so many Asians in Leicester that the Sikhs can hate on the Gujaratis. Do you know what I mean? Because there's enough of them. Oh yeah, so, definitely. So, so, so many, and you must know this. You must, you must have been caught in the crossfire. I dare say you were probably, <laughs> you were probably put out as some kind of a sort of negotiator with a with a megaphone. No, guys, guys, come on, come on, we're all brown here. Come on now. <laughs> so it's true though. It's true that my cousin would 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 speak incredibly derogatorily about Gujaratis, and I'm like, mate, yeah, you're, you're you're all suffering. You've all got the same jackboot on your neck. What? Why? Why are you picking on the Gujaratis? So you will know. It's all well played. I'm very impressed. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, Sanjeev, how did you find the? Now I'm pronouncing your name again. I'm like, God, I better say it right a second time. <laughs> the pressure's on. <laughs> um, how did you find the process of whittling down your choices today? Do you find it easy to kind of instantly come up with a list of people and things you hate, or is it a bit harder to whittle it down? I'm a bit of a people pleaser. I, I hate confrontation. I've never liked it. I've always been bad at it. And I've got my theories about this. I mean, I think it's because. When I was growing up, I, th- I think I wanted to uh, impress everyone because I wanted them to like Asians. I genuinely think that that was a feature of my life from when I was about five years old. Because um, we, our family, used to have uh, a news agent. Of course, we did. Mm. We're Asian. It's in the small print uh, for a while. I mean, my, my, my mum was a, like a qualified social worker. My dad was a teacher. But for about four or five years, um, we had this shop, and I'd see my mum serving the customers, and you could see them coming in and. It was a pretty kind of white neighborhood and they were, I wouldn't say suspicious, they're a little bit wary of this this wee woman in her shawakamis. Uh, and then her English was better than theirs and you could see them being impressed and 
she was really polite to them. And I just remember thinking, you know, she's really changed some attitudes there. She's really kind of challenged some stereotypes. And that, that always stayed with me. And I think mm. I've taken that with me. So I've always been overly polite to people. I've always held do doors open for people, even like known racists. In fact, <laughs> specifically known racists, in order to just say, to walk away from that and thinking, oh, Asians are just like us. They're not terrorists. They're not this, they're not that. They're not fundamental. Um, uh, they don't all smell of curry, although <laughs> there is a reason why some of us smell of curry, and that's another podcast. But the um, <laughs> and then latterly, that has become. Um, I don't want people to think that he's uh, a prick because he's on the television. So that's <laughs> kind of become the new um, reason for me to please people. So what it means is is that I'm not brilliant at hating on people. I, I generally try to look for the positive in people. Having said that, though, there are people that I don't like. And um, mm. uh, uh, so, so it wasn't a natural thing for me to come up with people and things that I hated. I do try to find, you know, like Hitler, for example, not, not everyone knows this. He was an outstanding mimic. He did a brilliant Harold Wilson. Now, you won't <laughs> see that in any history books. And why should you? It's not that relevant. But I like to, I do like to see, I like to see the sweet corn in the pan of diarrhea. <laughs> that's, that's what I like to do. Um, well, I'd say, well, think of this as like a, a, a safe space where, yes. where you are allowed to say whatever you want. <laughs> you know, maybe letting off a bit of steam will help you continue, you know, your path of just being a nice guy. This is you, isn't it? This is you, Dan. This is you handing me a, a sniper rifle and telling me to go up that water tower. That's what you're doing, aren't you? <laughs> Yeah, and then in the hope that everything will be exactly the same afterwards and <laughs> exactly. it won't, won't leave you a changed, embittered man. Exactly. Like every best sitcom, we return back to from whence we came. Yeah, I always try and tell people it's cathartic, and then afterwards they go, "Oh, this is cathartic." And then, sort of towards the end, they start going, "God, I'm really angry now." So we'll we'll see how we go on this journey, shall <laughs> we? Okay, let's let's uh, let's kick it off then. Who's going to be the first person joining you on the island? Well, this 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 already presented me with a bit of a dilemma because I was thinking, who are the three worst people I'd want to spend any length of time with in a, in, in a confined space? And I'm thinking, maybe it's three people that I really like that I don't want to spend time with because. You only got, you're never going to impress anyone over that length of time, are you? They're only going to see the worst bits. <laughs> mm. Not that long ago, um, I was at the Scottish BAFTAs two, three years ago, and I sat next to Armando Inucci, who is one of my five living heroes. Yeah. And I was next to him for two and a half hours, like eating starter mean and pudding. And the whole time I was like having an embolism, trying not to make a dick of myself. <laughs> and I know for a fact, had that been for a year on a desert island, I would have made a dick of myself. I know the fan right into his little face. So... My worry would be that if I did, you know, the, the, the logic would be, oh, I'd love to be marooned on a desert island with Prince. But then do I really want Prince to see me shitting into a hole? Do I want to see Prince shitting into a hole? No, I don't. <laughs> um, um, what, what if Prince turned out to be a casual racist? I mean, because you put on your best face, don't you, for the cameras? But then it's like Big Brother, isn't it? Once you forget that the cameras are on you, then all the horrible stuff comes to the surface. So that was my first dilemma, but thought that's not good for the podcast. So <laughs> I had picked people that I don't like. I mean, like I said, I don't, I'm not the most confrontational. I have occasionally done it on Twitter. Sometimes I think if someone really needs to be punched in the upward direction, I'll do it. And of course on Twitter, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a keyboard warrior. I'm, you know, I, I have a Twitter profile and my face is on there. I don't pretend that I'm someone that I'm not, you know. Um, uh, and I do mostly torturous puns on Twitter. That's kind of what I do. But occasionally when someone fucks me off so much, I feel I have to say something. And I did it with Lawrence Fox, right? Who was right. my first candidate for this bloody desert island, right? And um, right. he had, uh, it, it, was a, it, was a, it was a photo, it was, it was a still of a uh, timeout um, interview that he'd done. And uh, the, the, the tagline is, Lawrence Fox interview, why am I not Bond? Question mark, right? <laughs> 
So I just retweeted it. And I didn't, I didn't include him in on it. You know, I just retweeted mm. it. I said, to be fair, Lance Fox is my second choice to be the next Bond. My first choice is everyone else ever who's ever lived ever, right? So that was <laughs> not an okay sort of joke and observation, but I, I, it was just annoying me so much that I, I felt it needed saying, right? Not that anyone really cares about, about my opinion. I don't normally opine publicly because I don't think, you know, I'm that relevant, but I'm even less relevant than he is. But then someone has obviously pinged it to him. So he's got back to me. And this is what he said. He said, I'm the wrong sex. I have the wrong skin color and I'm straight. The next bond will be a non-binary, gender fluid, alphabet person. <laughs> so I wouldn't worry too much. Have a nice life, Govinda Jeggy, which is my Twitter handle, right? Hmm. So I'm thinking... What really is it? So you're just, you're doubling down then. You're just, you're absolutely digging into this. And also as more than one person pointed out, alphabet person, I'm assuming he means LGBTQ plus, right? Yeah. But they pointed out <laughs> he's getting really fucked off when they realize that Bond has an M and a Q in it, right? <laughs> which, which, which is pretty funny. So I'm thinking, you know, I kind of I have to react to this. So I got back with, um, so I, I play Naveed in Still Game, which is this uh, comedy that's massive in Scotland. Yeah. It does have does have fans outside of Scotland, but it's a big old Scottish phenomenon. So it was kind of from a Scottish massive. I retweeted what he said and I said, my sincere apologies. I just found out that Lawrence Fox was down to the last two to play Naveed and Still Game. Brown privilege is real. Okay. <laughs> and I, th I thought, you know what? That's sometimes what comedy is for. Rather than let my hackles rise to this, just try and deal with it in a sort of comedy way. I thought it might be quite funny if he did actually make it to play this Asian shopkeeper and didn't get it because because of brown privilege, right? But the best thing that came out of that was I was retweeted by someone. Now, I want you to guess who this is, Daniel, who might have retweeted that because it would just show how random Twitter is. I'll give you three guesses as to who might have retweeted that. Okay. Um, I don't know. Piers Morgan? No. Okay. Go sport. Sport. Um I'm so bad at sport. I'm just, uh, Gary Lineker, he's okay. very active on. Okay, you, you played the Leicester card and it's to your credit, but go now go <laughs> now go tennis and not Leicester. Oh. Go 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 tennis and check dissident. I'm forgetting oh. that you're about half my age, so you might not actually get the <laughs> reference now. Oh, hang on. Check. Uh, Ivan Lendl? Is he, oh, is he you, you, No, Martina Navratilova. Oh, perfect. I'm so, I'm just, I was just going, who sounds Eastern European <laughs> from tennis from a few generations to be fair, ago? To be fair, I think he might actually be from Transylvania and might actually be, you know, you know a, okay. a, a sucker. But um, no, Martina Navratilova <laughs> Amazing. retweets it. And then I just tweet her and I say, you made my decade. I think you're brilliant. And she said, oh, you make me laugh. I'm like, this is when Twitter works, right? Yeah. But it all it all came it all came from my um my you know perfectly logical hatred of, of Lawrence Fox. I mean he just it's a bit of an obvious choice, but I don't know, it just currently when we're talking about the people that react to things like woke and white privilege and all this stuff, and it's it's very interesting talking to you as someone that grew up as a minority and probably would be much more tuned to what actually goes on. And, and lives in reality. You've got a guy, Lance Fox, who not only is, you know, white and middle class and, and, and went to a very privileged school. And I don't deny him all those things. That's the childhood he had, right? And also, lest we forget, comes from an acting dynasty. So, you know, hmm. who knows? Nepotism might have had something to do with the success he's had. But for him to claim that somehow he doesn't have any kind of privilege, that's when I have a problem with him. And this is the guy that actually said he complained about why are there Asian sh sh soldiers in this production? Um, it's about World War One. It's it, that's th this is the woke brigade having their say. And then someone pointed out to him that a hundred thousand 
Indian soldiers died in World yeah. War I fighting for the British Army. Um, so he, um, he is almost like unusually pure taxi driver. Do you know, if you, if you, if you got the DNA of every right-wing taxi driver you'd ever, ever suffered and, and, you, and mm. you put it in a test tube and, and you somehow grew it in a Petri dish, you would come up with this, um, this lanky streak of pish. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible. And, and, and what's hilarious is, is that because he's got an audience now who I think fund him, I think that's how he's making his living now. I could be wrong. Um, but he's absolutely doubling, tripling down and digging. He's, he's, dug, so, he's dug so far that he's, he's hit the Earth's core but, and he keeps going. He keeps going to the other side. It's, it's almost hilarious. That's why he'd be so frustrating on a desert island, apart from like his obvious bias, is that, you know, no reasoning or evidence yes. will ever, ever change his mind. So it's kind of like those circular arguments you get in with a bouncer when you're like, oh, there's just no <laughs> point having any, you know, I can't bring in any logical reason here because you're just yeah. going to keep sticking to your guns despite everything telling you you're so obviously wrong. It's almost like, you know, I grew up, um, I went to a Catholic school and um, I rejected religion pretty early. I mean, especially Christianity, because I just think, think of what the Bible is. It's, it's not only is it one of the worst written pieces of fiction that's ever been, it's, it's <laughs> doing about 10 people who will contradict each other. And you decided that this would be the text that you'd use to, to live your life by. And, you know, I, I used to talk to, to, to priests who are in every other kind of sphere of their life, logical, good, clever people. And you'd actually see them panicking, trying to justify passages in the Bible. I remember, I remember being in primary six in Scotland, so that would be, what, nine, ten years old? And I'm not, I, was, I was never, like I say, non-confrontational. I never really questioned authority. I'm also fear authority. But I remember having a real issue with the Holy Trinity. And I thought, how can God be three things? I, don't, I, I couldn't get my head around it. How can God be the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? I don't understand. And I asked my teacher at the time, I said, Miss, I don't understand this. Is God three things? Is the one thing I don't understand? And her response to me was, Sanjeev, that's a holy mystery, and it's a sin to try and understand a holy mystery. <laughs> now, how can you possibly argue with that? How can you, it's, like, it's like you say, if you're stuck in a desert island with someone that's going to come up with that shit, <laughs> as I dare say Lawrence Fox will, then you're right. It's, it's going to be, it's like, why, why, why engage in dialogue? Why even try? It's like trying to argue with a fried egg on the wall. <laughs> it's a pointless, pointless exercise. You can get nothing from it. All it's going to do is drive your blood pressure up. And, you know, are there, is there a defibrillator on the island? Probably not. Depends what you can salvage from the plane, I think. That's true. Yeah. Although I'm sure the defibrillator is probably next to the black box and is probably encased in the material that the black box is made of, which coincidentally is also the same material that Sheen McGowan's made of. So on the island, you would have the black box, the defibrillator and Sheen McGowan. And I think I'd much rather talk to Sheen McGowan, frankly. Even if you sort of said, look, Lawrence, to get on on this island, we're never going to discuss race anymore because it's been three years. I can't be bothered. So just ignore that. But you'd still hear the occasional, you know, and you're like, I don't know what you're angry about. Maybe like, is the, is the sand not white enough? Like, what is it? Like, what's wrong here? You know. And also, is, is he just one of those people that just feels he has to contradict everyone? Like, would he just say something like, I think, I think chips are shit. <laughs> and then you challenge him on it. And then he's, and then he says, oh, I need to justify what I just said then. And you come up with, with, with what he thinks the Korean argument as to why he thinks chips are shit or Jaffa Cakes, or something that, you know, universally loved. Yeah. That's possibly who he is and, and, and quite enjoys being entitled and being, you know, being allowed to express an opinion and not have it challenged in his, in his little bubble. I mean, that is the problem, isn't it, with social networking is, is that 
knowing that someone like that actually has people at his back, whereas before you could just think it was like a random outlier lunatic. And also what's, what's really depressing is he's younger than I am. You know, it's not, I can't say, oh, Nana, oh, Nana. You know, it, it must have been hard for you living in the East End of London when the Asians were moving in. He's fucking 41 or something, dick. But that's the thing, isn't it? I've worked with, like, people in the past who, you know, had sort of dodgy views and people go, oh, no, that's just him. He's just old-fashioned. I'm like, well, my mum's, like, a good 30 years older than him and doesn't act like that. Yeah. Even if you're 80, you were here in the 60s, you know, you've seen immigration and multiculturalism happen and it's like you sort of got had enough time to get used to it yeah now, so but, but, it, but it comes down doesn't it to basic respect for other human beings and that's something that was never out of fashion or out of style i mean you look at like you know when we whenever we reassess comedy in the 60s and the 70s it's always different times different times like don't ever recall eric morcom being racist or sexist yeah les les dawson wasn't i mean okay he did the mother-in-law stuff but actually that was more a joke about him than it was about his mother-in-law um it was when it's clever people who have respect for other human beings, then racism, sexism, chauvinism, toxic masculinity, these, these are all corollaries of a lack of respect for another human being. You know, it's, that, that's abuse of power. And if you live your life by those rules, it, it doesn't matter if it's the 1920s or the 2010s. You, you shouldn't, you know, those things shouldn't tumble out of the mix, should they? Yeah, quite. Okay, well, Lawrence Fox is your first dick joining you on the island, and it's a, it's a strong start. So uh, who are we going to add into the mix? Who's the next dick joining you? Okay, well, this was a guy... Um, um, I, I've called him Sarcastic Ticket Guy because I don't know his name, so I've kind of <laughs> given him the, the Simpsons kind of catch-all comic book guy. Sarcastic Ticket Guy. So I was... Um, I must have been about 16 or 17, and... Um, I was in London on my own for the first time. No, normally I'd go with family, but um, I'd be, I, I wanted to be independent. I was going to, I'm, no, I'm going, I'm going into, I'm going to go to Covent Garden and I'm going to go on my own. Mm-hmm. So I went to family in Hounslow in West London and I went to the, um, I went to the ticket the office and there was a guy there. And uh, what I should have asked for was a travel card, like a one day travel card. So anyone that has been to London will know it, it's a ticket. It just, it just gets you around London for the whole day sort of thing. So what I should have asked for was a travel card. But what I said was, uh, excuse me, how much is a Rover card? Mm. And his response to me was, and this was his voice, I'm not making up, probably quite a lot to a collector given that it was discontinued three years ago. <laughs> now, number one, I'm not. that was his voice. You know, it's, I've not done a John Majors and made up his voice. He, he, <laughs> it was almost like his excessive sarcasm had shaped his mouth so that his voice sounded like that. But also, prick! I'm clearly yeah. 17 years old and I've asked for the wrong thing. And again, it comes to that power thing. You know, I'm clearly quite vulnerable and he's the guy, he's the gatekeeper in the situation. And why did you think that sarcasm, like excessive, like bitter sarcasm was the correct choice at that point? You know, fair enough, if I was a bit older or something, it'd have been, you know, but he's just a coward, isn't he? Yeah. You know, using sarcasm as a weapon behind his plexiglass. Uh, and, you know, as, as someone that isn't, I mean, I don't normally get angry, but I was absolutely raging, absolutely raging with that guy. And I just thought, you know, that's really, really lazy as well. I mean, don't get me wrong, sarcasm in the right context and used to the right person is fine. I know they call it the lowest form of humor and all that, but um, I don't have an issue with it when it's used in the right context. But um, that just annoyed me. And imagine being stuck with that guy, because I'd imagine, well, he's obviously a pedant as well. Mm. And... Um, Thing is, I'm a bit of a pedant, but in my mind. So I'm a bit of a grammar Nazi because I um, 
I was very good at English at school and I did Latin and I, I love language and I love wordplay and I'm a big stickler for the for punctuation and I hate the abuse of punctuation. So the old apostrophe thing, I mean, I internalize it. <laughs> but, you know, this I'll, I'll never say it out loud. I'll, I'll, I'll try not to pick people up on their grammar. I do it with my kids to fuck them off. Yeah. Like I once said, um, my daughter, she was, I think she was about 10 at the time, and she, 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 she gave me the best comeback I've ever had because... I said, oh, how, was, um, how did you do in your test or whatever it was? And she said, I did good. Mm. And I said, it's I did well, Bill. It's an adverb. And she just looked at me and she had, she had quite an evil stare. She looked at me and said, you're an adverb, <laughs> which I thought was quite the comeback. And we still say that in, 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 our, in, in the house to, to this day. But um, <laughs> I, I'll tend to internalize that stuff and say, do you know what? Maybe you're the dick because language is a, a fluid thing and, you know, the whole thing of using of instead of have, it really grinds my gears, but I'll, I'll let it go because, you, do you know what? Language is fluid, so I'll tend to internalize that stuff. But you know for a fact that sarcastic ticket guy is going to verbalize everything, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, it's a generalization. I feel like there's a, the, you know, that line of pedantry runs runs through the transport system quite a lot. <laughs> yes. And, is, and is, it co- is it cause or effect? Do they, A, recruit people on that basis? Is, is there a line for... Please be sarcastic in 400 words or less, otherwise you don't get the job. Or is it that that kind of line of work lends itself to pedantry? Or is it that, you know, because like, I was perfectly polite to the man and, and, and very genial. Like I say, I'm a people pleaser, but I suppose a lot of people in that situation aren't and maybe their only weapon is sarcasm. Mm. So this character, Naveed, that I play in Still Game, so for people that don't know the show... It's set in Craig Lang, which is a fictional area of Glasgow, which is really quite kind of working class and poor. Uh, and Naveed owns the shop on the estate on the scheme. So he's kind of like the richest guy in the scheme. He's the guy that drives the tan Merc with the private number plates. And he's like a, he's a, he's a Muslim, but that's, that's not relevant really until later in, in, the, in the run. So he's Asian and, he, and, and he's, in, he's in the community. And um, so many people have said, oh, did, did the guys, because I don't write the show, so Ford, Kieran, and Greg Hempel, who play Jack and Victor in the show, they write the show. And they wrote, Naveed, the character, he's, basically he's, what he is, is he's incre- he is sarcastic and quite kind of playful. And um, a lot of people have said to me, oh, did the boys base the Naveed character on our shopkeeper? About 100 people have said this to me. And they said, no, what they've done is that they, they, they just observed that you have this uh, brand of shopkeeper, and they do tend to be Asian for reasons that are, you know, socioeconomic. You know, my, that's, that's the reason we had a shop was my dad saw all his friends getting promoted before him. That's why we had a shop for a while. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to embrace that stereotype. So, but you've got a lot of Asian shopkeepers who are incredibly sarcastic. And the reason being is, is that that's all they've got because you can't lay into someone with a baseball bat anymore. It's very unfashionable. <laughs> you can't, you know, so all you really have is your words. So um, they developed this brand of sarcasm over the years, you know, when pe- really objectionable people or lanky Neds asking for a single fag coming to the shop and that's all they really have. They can only really disarm them with words, which is probably why they've developed this line of sarcasm. So maybe sarcastic ticket guy and his ilk, because I'm sure they have an ilk. Mm. Um, that's why they are the, the, they are the way they are. But um, don't stick it out on me. You know, I didn't, yeah. I didn't give you a reason to be sarcastic. I asked a perfectly nice question with with no strings no context and you you came at me you came at me with a bag of sarcasm and i didn't like it when you started talking about this guy i instantly thought of one that i had a couple of years ago that 
still makes me as angry now as it did then. And it was like we went snowboarding just before the pandemic started, and um, we got like a bus from the airport to the place we were staying. And you know, I'd written down our address in French. I, I didn't know the address, but I sort of copied what I had on an email from the place we were staying. And then the driver was exactly like this sort of ticket inspector. He was kind of going. Oh, uh, who's who's next on this? And is that your surname? Uh, oh, we had a laugh in the office when uh, when we saw the address you'd written down. You see, in France, the postcode number is actually measured as a distance in meters from the centre of a town. So what you've written there is that your uh, place where you're staying is six hundred thousand meters away from the uh, centre. So we did laugh, and I'm like, mate, <laughs> forgive me, forgive my lack of like. French postcode <laughs> conventions. Like I obviously ended a couple of zeros by mistake in a hurry because I've got all these bags and a two-year-old with me. Do you know what I mean? Like, Jesus Christ. Because like you, you or I in that position would have allowed ourselves a little chuckle at the cultural difference and said, no, well, obviously he's not from around here, but that's funny. But then to, for the number of decisions you had to make to then tell you that back and say, we had a laugh about it. You are a figure of ridicule. Put you in the stocks for making a perfectly innocent mistake. It makes him an utter prick. Yeah, he actually did it with the microphone on the bus oh, as well. Yeah. You know, like oh. the, the little mic the driver has. Oh, like, what a dick move that is. Oh, I know, yeah. I'm raging on your behalf. Oh, well, that's actually, that's, that, that set me off. That's, that's a basic injustice that I'm not happy with, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. So oh, I, I absolutely know this kind, and I feel like they they can be rife on public transport, and um, and yeah, maybe it is something about having to deal with dicks all day, every day. You kind of it's your only amusement, but it's still a, a dickish mood. Just just be like every other normal person, save it up, and then bitch about the person to your colleagues on your tea break. That's what the rest of us do. Yeah, just hold it in for an appropriate time with people who give a shit, or better still, put him and sarcastic ticket guy together on the on the desert island and have a sarcasm off. Yeah. What I should have done was somehow, if, if, if I'd been older and wiser and cleverer, I could have replied with sarcasm. But actually what you want to do is just tell the fuck off at speed. But to, to see two titans of sarcasm slugging <laughs> out would be, would be that, that, that's sky one gold that is. Yeah. I mean, can you just imagine having to deal with that kind of person on a desert island? Like you're trying to climb a palm tree to knock down some coconuts and they're just standing there really sunburnt going oh uh, let us know if you find any coconuts while you're busy having <laughs> playing around up there or you know that sort of thing oh, like, imagine being married to that guy i mean th- these are the, the aren't these like the the kind of the the stereotype woman who 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 clatters a, a paperweight on the husband's head after 30 years because it's been a, a, it's been a drip feed it's been nothing specific and it's been, you know, he was never physically violent to her or anything like that, but it's been like drip feed, drip feed, drip feed of sarcasm. And then he just pushes, over, pushes her over the plimsoll line. <laughs> I would love for him to pick up on Lawrence Fox's, uh, um, you know, if he got his grammar wrong or something, just pick a little <laughs> hole in him, you know, because obviously language is, the, is, is, is one of the weapons of empire. I'd just love for him to pick a little, just pick a little hole in him, just... See if he disintegrated. That'd be nice. Yeah. All that money and uh, still getting your apostrophes in the wrong place, Lawrence, eh? Oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Classic. And, uh, I mean, I think we have to move on because I'm I, like, just the thought of this kind of person is just sort of making my skin crawl slightly. So who's going to be the third person rounding out that trio of dicks? Oh, God. Well, I was I was going to be really obvious again and say Pretty Patel. Um, but um, anyone that actually went to the bother of getting her name put on a jacket to show up at deportation. 
you know, of her own mum, probably mm. anything else. <laughs> but I'll, I won't, I'll, I'll go with Gino De Campo. Okay, Gino De Campo. So, yeah, we know who he is, don't we? He's, um, he's the very handsome. Um, now, I, th- I don't know if he's Italian, Italian or British Italian. I'm not sure. Um, but he, if he is British Italian, he's certainly playing up the Italian Italian when he shows up on things at like GMTV. And um, it's just, oh God, he presses all my buttons because he's basically, he's just trying to entertain Middle England with not even double entendres. Mm. It's just single entendres. It's, and it's, there's nothing subtle about it. You know, doing jokes about dicks and balls. And at one point, I mean, my wife was watching it and I, I'm possibly paraphrasing here, but he was talking about going to Italy and with a show that he'd done. And I think he's talking to, Phil and Holly and 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 Holly said, oh, whereabouts in Italy is that? He says, well, you know how Italy is kind of, you know, the shape of this and that. Well, basically, I was in the vagina of Italy. Wow. And I thought, um, wow, uh, you know, I'm not a prude, but wow, <laughs> behave yourself, behave yourself. Yeah. Um, you've just done that for effect. You've just done that for the, the lols and the likes. And obviously, there's going to be sort of tittering um Middle Englanders like uh, having a wheel of time at this, and it really fucks me off that that, that, that he has an audience for this utter shit. <laughs> um, because it's exactly what it is. it's like. It's almost like he's he's press. He's not even pressing the buttons. He's like Rick fucking Wakeman. He's playing full ten finger <laughs> ten finger chords of this shit for Middle England and playing right up to it. And you know, oh God, he always he always getting his arse out. And it's like, oh mate, come on. Do you know how obvious you're being? But then, the, the annoying, like I say, the annoying thing is, is that he has an audience, mm. including that arsehole Philip Schofield, who would be, you know, he's on the subs bench for the bet for the <laughs> for the, for the desert island because he's another fucking Middle England pleaser as well. It's it's honestly it does my head. And when you're watching mainstream television, you think, is is this what Britain is? Is this is this what makes people laugh? Is this what is this humour? Yeah. And annoyingly, it probably is. The people that find that really really funny. Um, and he, Junior De Campo, is absolutely rinsing the arse out of it. He's literally, uh, he's, he, he just, I have to actually walk away when he's on the television. <laughs> and I said to my mum, if he, uh, you know, because I already hate Philip Schofield anyway, but him and Gino together, I need to walk away because I know that Philip and Holly are going to enable this prick yeah. by laughing at him, by being Middle England for me on my own television. If he's like he is on screen, he would just be absolutely exhausting to spend time with you know that kind of person at that sort of level of intensity for that i just find it so tiring yes but there's part of me that thinks when he gets off camera he's like a complete diva and just very hard work do you know what i mean you know yeah. people who yeah. sort of make their living being a bit silly and telly but they're really hard work and take themselves very seriously and I, i've got a feeling that i can't prove but he's one of those well i know what you're saying because i equate him to gordon ramsay and i know that they did that show together with that with with fred from first dates mm. who i like i like him he seems kind of a nice guy i, I wasn't say, i wouldn't say i was sniffy of presenters because i've done it myself but i put a lot more stock in people just being nice human beings because mm. i think that actually is the solution to everything. Like, it annoys me that people like Gordon Ramsay and Anne Robinson, who are clearly horrible, horrible people in real life, get a shot at television. I mean, Gordon Ramsay, who who said that bullying in the workplace was okay again all of a sudden? Mm. Who said that was fine? Who said that that was entertainment? I mean, one of my guilty pleasures is Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares, but not because of him. He's a 24-carat, 2,000-piece jigsaw of a prick. <laughs> what, I, what I like is... Is the is the denial of the owners of the restaurants, and I quite like a you know transformation where they see the error of their ways. Mm. Annoyingly, it takes this prick to point it out to them. 
Um, but I, honestly, that his whole shtick about being that rude and that ballsy, I, I, honestly, I'm, I'm done with it. Why do we? You know, I I, I watch. I, I don't I, I don't hate all the reality television. I, I like reality television when it's people actually being nice and collaborative. So I like Strictly Come Dancing. I like The Bake Off. Mm-hmm. I like Gogglebox. What I hate is I'm a celebrity. What I hate is Big Brother. You know, when they're actually putting, you know, humans into a cage and actually trying to spark these false confrontations and these, you know, these false divides. I can't be arsed with that anymore. I'm done with it. Um, the first series of Big Brother was interesting. It was like a social experiment. Yeah. But now it's like, um, what are we going to do to them now? And it's like, fuck off with that. Honestly, I'm done. I'm absolutely done with it. And I'm done with people like Gordon Ramsay getting our airtime. Okay, fair enough. He might be an okay chef. Just let him chef. Don't give him airtime because you're only encouraging that kind of behavior. Gordon Ramsay, he worked in a kitchen with, I think, Marco Pierre White, who is notoriously mean and bullyish. Yeah. And it's like, but you've been through that now. And now you're at the top of your game. You're this huge voice in the industry. Just stop being a dick. Like you're a multimillionaire. Yeah. This is the same with the medical profession, right? Because I was a medical student for a very short period of time, right? And when you graduate in, in Britain, um, with your degree, you have to become a, 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 a junior houseman, which involves really stupid hours. Like you, you get so tired, you're putting lives at risk. Mm. And consultants or people at the top of the game had a chance to change this. And their argument was, well, we had to do it. Yeah. Didn't harm us. Well, A, it did harm you. <laughs> uh, and B, um, you have, you've got a chance to change something here. Or are you honestly saying that, well, we had to do it? I mean, what kind of child says that? You're absolutely right. They're in a position to change all this stuff. Mm. Um, and this whole this whole notion, and it's the same in my business, you know, in, in in the acting business, you know, I've worked with some utter pricks, and they get away with it because they're quite talented mm. and they're enabled. Um, because I, I guess it's almost like that uh, Paul Gascoigne argument, which is, oh, if you uh, if you take away that part of the game, then they won't be you know as good anymore. I'm sorry, but Tom Hanks is one of the nicest human beings to draw breath, and he's got three Oscars. You know what I mean? Yeah. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. I don't particularly like his politics or the Scientology thing. But, you know, he's he will shake everyone's hand and talk to everyone. Yeah. So don't tell me you have to act like a star to be a star. That argument is absolutely redundant. And I feel the and same with, like, the, rock and roll and stuff. It's like Dave Grohl. Oh, yes. Dave Grohl, nice guy, still does a Except, good show. Yes, thank like, you. I don't think he's, like, any way less rock and roll than, like, someone who's just a prick all the time. And it's like... Why, why do know. people think that you have to throw a television... This whole thing about throwing television at hotel rooms, that fucking annoys me. <laughs> Because I'm sorry, but you know, you're not you're not a quarterback. You haven't got the aim <laughs> to land that television far away enough from people, and also televisions explode, mm. and I've got sharp bits. You're going to do damage to an innocent because you thought it was somehow rock and roll through a fucking television out of a fucking hotel room. You fucking infant. There was I'm someone done with it. <laughs> there was someone. I think it might be in Keith Moon. Like the legend goes that like. They wanted to throw the telly out the window, but they wanted to make sure it stayed on all the way down so that people would see it. <laughs> so they used to go and buy extension cords. And you're like, you've gone so full circle with this. You started out rock and roll, and then you've gone into sort of vandalism. And then you've gone quite boring, because earlier in the day, you were going, oh, look, I need to go via uh, Maplins, because I need to... You know what I mean? There was a part in your day where you've had to take time out to go to an electrical retailer. <laughs> When it's that premeditated, I don't think it's cool anymore, you know. Oh, God, honestly, that, that needs to be eradicated. And I, I think, because I think the whole Me Too thing is, to be slightly serious, is 
is absolutely valid and, and needs to be changed. But I think the whole Me Too thing is, is actually a small part of the whole spectrum of just people treating other people badly and people treating other people with a lack of respect. And, you know, I, I see it on sets all the time where, you know, people like me are supposedly called the talent. Well, I'm sorry, but none of this would be on air mm. if any of us weren't here. So don't be calling me the talent. We're all the talent. And the, the way that so-called runners and so-called junior um, operatives are, are 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 treated like shit. I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm like, have you not got children? Would you want them to be treated like that? Yeah, I know it's mad. Like, so, isn't so it? I'm really, really hoping that that it isn't just me too. That will be all about just people treating other people with dignity and respect. Yeah. Because that honestly, there'd be so, so many of the world's problems would be solved if that was true. Yeah, having worked in broadcasting for a long time, it's exactly the same there. And you're like, hang on, but but they're talented, but they, I'm talented. I'm working a lot longer than they are for a lot less pay. So yes, but, and I don't even get called talented at the end of it. Well, I think you made a very strong start, and um, you know we're going to distract you from the evil of humanity slightly by <laughs> moving on. Because mercifully, amongst the wreckage of the plane, there was some food and drink left over. Unfortunately for you, it's your least favourite food and drink in the world. What are they, and why are they so bad? A thing called clay pot chicken. Now let me explain what clay pot chicken is, or certainly was in this one place. So I happened to be in—I was touring around the states. This was 1993, so I was 23 years old. Um, I was touring around the States with my mate Arif, and um, uh, we're in San Francisco, which is an amazing place anyway, but also has got the biggest Chinatown outside of China itself. Mm-hmm. Although I wouldn't imagine they call it Chinatown in China, would they? And um, <laughs> just call it home. <laughs> and so Arif had said, oh, do you know, we need to do that thing. They say you, you get like proper, authentic Chinese food, like proper rural Chinese food in San Francisco, if you find the right place. And, you know, if you go through a dry cleaners and there's a restaurant in the back and the menus are all in Cantonese. So we went, we found this place and we did, we had to go through dry cleaners and it was at the back and it was all like, it was all bamboo and it felt really authentic. I mean, not, not you can never really know, but because, you know, it was all Chinese people there, but then, you know, <laughs> I want to start an agency where I, uh, you know, I send Italian people to Italian restaurants and make them sit in the window so that people think, oh, that's a good restaurant. <laughs> um, so um, I'll call it windowmeat.com. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> so, um, so, we, so we find this place and uh, we're sat, and it was, it was the, the, the menu was in Cantonese, but there was the occasional English word and clay pot chicken came up. I thought, oh, okay, I like chicken, I like pots, I like clay. I'm going to have the clay <laughs> pot chicken. So ordered that. And a clay pot came along and I thought, oh, do you know, I quite like a stew and a broth. This looks promising. So I took the lid off and um, um, I'd, I asked for a fork because I'm, I'm shit with chopsticks. I just am. And uh, I got the fork and I was kind of like sort of mixing up, see what was in there. And, and, and I fought something and I, I pulled out what, it was a tube of cartilage. Hmm. I can only imagine it was a gullet, the chicken's <laughs> throat. And I'll eat pretty much anything apart from blackcurrant jaffa cakes but i think that's the first time i've actually completely untouched a meal because i thought i'd you know i come from punjabi culture where you know my wife slags me off for this but if if if, my, if we're around at my mum's and she makes chicken i will nibble everything but i i, I honestly draw the line at eating a chicken's throat i mean and this is the reason why you know one of the many reasons why i would never do i'm a celebrity because eating all that stuff, it's just beyond the pill for me. I can't do it. Often with these things, it's like the taste is very 
like and it, you know it's nothing strong or weird it's just textures that we don't have yes. especially in like western cuisine our textures are very similar yeah you know there's nothing that chewy or springy or rubbery and like textures much harder to get over than strong tastes totally because you, know, you can try something new and just go oh my god i don't know what this is like but it's amazing but something that's just especially when it's a tube and you know it has a certain function in the body <laughs> well exactly exactly how clean is that i mean i I, when I was a medical student, um, uh, I did it for four months. And so we did anatomy and we, we were all like, there were six of us to each cadaver mm. dissecting and looking at stuff. And my last dissection was, so we'd finished on the thorax and we moved on to the lower abdomen. And the first thing you have to do is basically um, evacuate the, the, the large intestine of, of your corpse if there's anything left in the system. Mm. So you're basically, the last thing I saw as a medical student was, Someone squeezing, squeezing basically brown toothpaste out of a dead woman's ass. So I'm never going to want to eat anything intestinal. <laughs> Fair enough. And what would you wash down your clay pot chicken with? Now, slight, maybe controversial, Guinness. Okay, Guinness. And it's actually quite similar to the clay pot chicken in the sense that it sounds inviting. I think nothing looks more beautiful and glorious than a freshly poured Guinness. Yeah. I mean, there's so much theater in the pouring of a Guinness. It, like, like nothing else. Not even custard has the same level of theatre when it comes to pouring. Uh, and it's, it's time-consuming, and it's about earning your right to have that Guinness. And, you know, I've seen it. I've, I've got friends that love Guinness, and it'll pour, and you'll see the clouds, and it's almost like a weather system in the glass, and then you've got a beautiful kind of mash topping, and then some will get a cake slice and flatten it. And you think, that looks absolutely amazing. That, that looks like the nectar of the gods. And to me, it tastes like diluted earth with a bit of, very washing up liquid. That's what it tastes like to me. And, and I think that's why I hate it so much is because it promises so much and delivers so little. And it gives you black shits. Mm. And there's no way there's no way around that. And that's very disconcerting. So, yeah, Guinness, I, I've never understood. It annoys me because I, I really, really want to love Guinness. And, you know, it, it had that kind of cashy, didn't it, for a while when they were doing the best adverts. Yeah. They're doing yeah. proper thought-provoking, yes, pretentious, but quite kind of entertaining adverts. And... It seemed to be the thing to ask for. You have a Guinness. Oh, Guinness. Because with Guinness, the brand, not only were you almost like empathizing with the Irish experience in a weird way. So it had that, it, you know, it had that kind of history to it. Mm. But also, because the Guinness family, I mean, I've been to Dublin recently and they bloody, they own the place. Uh, and, and, and they say, oh, Guinness is never as good. Anyway, it doesn't travel well. You've got to have a Guinness in Dublin. I did. It still tastes like shit to me. Very <laughs> subjective. Just not a fan. But... It's there's so many boxes ticked with Guinness. It looks great it's, as a historical context. It has a as a narrative, but also has this kind of new, kind of almost philosophical, existential kind of kind of layer going on. And then you drink it, you think, nah, I'd just much rather have an orange squash. <laughs> because the thing is, I'm not a bit, I'm not a big drinker generally. You see, I'm a I've got very childish taste buds when it comes to to booze. I mean, I, I mean, I see that I've got the the drinking habits of a 13-year-old female goth. I mean, I like things like fruit <laughs> cider. Do you know what I mean? I mean I, I'm Scottish and Punjabi. I should love whiskey. Yeah. Whiskey's a massive thing in Punjabi culture. It's a real status thing, especially in Sikh culture. Mm. And if you go to, when, when I go back to India and my cousin takes me to his like bloody country club, it's, oh, whiskey, you got to have whiskey. And I, I don't like whiskey. I wish I, I, wish I did because I know, again, that is a whole world. I know people that can waxed lyrical for years about whiskey and about how you add water to whiskey and the caramel and this and that. I just don't get it. 
And I don't like lager either. And I'm Scottish. <laughs> so um, I'm a bit of a conundrum. So a lot of drinkers waste on me. I think I like things like, I like all these new gins. I like rum. I've, I've basically got a bit of a sweet tooth. I think that's my issue. A lot of these choices are coming down to sort of, you know, you feeling like maybe a bit let down because, you know, like whiskey looks delicious. It looks like, you know, melted honey, but, it, yes. you know, it's it's a really strong spirit. And like Guinness looks, you know, I mean, I like all these things that you're mentioning, but, <laughs> you know, Guinness is one of the very few things that looks the same as it does on the advert. It's not like a Big Mac that looks like one thing in a picture and you yes. get it out of the box and it's just this mashed little like yes. tiny thing. You know, Guinness looks like it's supposed to and it's, it's so inviting. Visually, it always delivers, you're right. Yeah, and it's the same with, you know, with your clay pot chicken. It's like, you know, you had this anticipation of what you were going to get and you've been let down. Maybe it's to do with this sort of thing of like, yeah. it doesn't deliver on the promise that, you know, that you want from it. Lawrence Fox let me down so many times. You're, you're absolutely right. And I thought I thought he was the leading light for race relations and he just let me down at the last minute. So listen, sell Guinness to me then. I don't know. I mean, I I, I think I've always quite liked it. So I, I don't really know. And, I, and also I recently came back to it after I used to drink it a lot. And uh, recently, as I get older, I find more and more things cause me upset uh, or like don't work with my new almost 40 year old body so mm -hmm. i'm having to chop and change and it's like you know i was really into hipster beers for a long time and ipas and then just found it was just made me feel so gassy and pregnant yes. i was like i thought there was something wrong with me so that, i had to cut that, that out my, that, do you know that is my issue with with all them things it's it's i can't it just fills me it fills me up mm. I, yeah, it's hard for me to slag it off, but um, I know a lot of people hate it as well. I mean, the black shit thing doesn't bother me because it's just my shit. You know, mm. I don't really mind what what that looks like. You know, I'll be the last person to see it. You know, as long as it's not like, as long as my shit's not bright red and, you know, then, then I don't really well, well, I, mind. I did, I did an interesting discussion with, with a guy about um, about shit, basically. Like, a lot of people feel that when... When when you defecate and when and when the excreta leaves your body, it's no longer yours. It's someone else's problem. Mm. Whereas a lot of people think that's that is my shit and I'm responsible for that. And it's the same with farts. Now I will never fart in public. I, I hate doing it. I'm really mm. embarrassed by it. Whereas a lot of people, like Miriam Margulies, I'm reading her book just now, and she farts at will, and there's no issue with it. <laughs> and it's interesting, isn't it? Like what I, I guess she's, she's thinking once it leaves her body, well, it's not me, is it? That's that's extraneous <laughs> to me now. It's another thing. Mm. And um, it's funny because the guy I was talking to about it happened to be a, a law graduate who's a musician now, a lovely guy called Roddy Hart. And we were discussing that maybe there should be a branch of law called fecal law, <laughs> whereby actually that should impact on if you if you slid in a human shit and wanted to sue the purveyor of that shit, could you sue them? Because is it their shit or is it just the world's shit? <laughs> anyway, it, it leads to say it's not a branch of law, but just the, you talk about that made me think of that because you're not bothered by your black shits, are you? There could be a podcast called Fecal Matters. Fecal um, Matters. And then we Fecal, could, like, let's, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's genius. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know what? I think though, as, you know, as a drink on a desert island, as I said, it's for me, it's a very winter drink. And yes. I think, you know, apart from the practicality of just sort of having warm Guinness to drink on a desert island is going to be a difficult one to swallow constantly. So I think it's a fair choice. And you get it along with your uh, clay pot chicken. Okay. Yeah. What, can I, uh, let mm. me do a really shit pun because that's kind of what I'm known for. Um, <laughs> I, I often imagine that if I were on a desert island, it would be surrounded by orange carbonated water, but that might just be a fantasy. 
<laughs> I did qualify it by saying it was shit. So I, I, I make no apologies for that. And the pun has already left my body, so I'm not responsible for it anymore. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Okay. Now, fortunately, you won't be without entertainment on the island. The plane's entertainment system continues to work, but just your luck, it only has two working settings. One is your least favourite film of all time, and the other <laughs> is your least favourite song. What are they and why? The Wicker Man remake with Nicolas Cage. <laughs> is um, a very interesting film. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it because why I don't tend to revisit things that are rubbish. But and I do like Nicolas Cage in the right context. I mean, one of my top three favorite films of all time is uh, Raising Arizona, mm. the Coen Brothers film, uh, which and I think he's he is absolutely. It's a wonderful film for no one that's seen it. It's kind of underrated. I think it's actually better than The Big Lebowski, which I love as well. But Raising Arizona is a, he's so good in that film. And he's also really good in Kick-Ass. I mean, I think when he's yeah. cast correctly, it's like anything, when you're cast correctly, great. But, oh, my God, he's cast so wrongly in The Wicker Man. And I've got a real issue with remakes anyway. Definitely. I mean, it's the basic logic of why do you remake something that's good? Well, the reason you do that is because it's a brand, and a brand will get bums on seats. And it's almost when they do remake, they almost, I get the impression they don't care that if it's shit, because it kind of doesn't matter. If you remake Starsky and Hutch, you're going to get massive viewings for the first month for people that just like Starsky and Hutch. It doesn't matter it's fuck all like the original. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And also, if you're going to do a remake, it's like doing a cover version of a song. Do you go, do you actually do it really faithfully? In which case, what was the point? Because it was quite good to start with. Or do you go so off the thread, it's something different. In which case, what was the point? Call it something different. But then I do know what the point is. The point is you're using the brand to get bums on seats. So, you know, you, know, you watch The Wicker Man, you think, oh, right, I love the original, which was great. But you're ne- you also, you're never going to recreate that sense of impending doom, are you? Uh, just with the, the lenses today. It's like, you know, when you watch something like The Omen or The Exorcist, there's a real horrible feeling that gets into your bones, into your core. And it's it's really, really hard for a modern film to recreate that because it was the way it was shot, it was the cinematography of the time. Mm. And The Omen still gets me on a very, very, it gets me in the feels. I'm 51. Um, <laughs> but it really, really gets into into my marrow because of that that feel and the Wicker Man's the same. It's just you, you, you're unsettled by the feel of the film that was never going to be recreated. And then Nicolas Cage, I mean, the, if no one has seen the film, someone put it on YouTube, they put all the Nicolas Cage bits together so you don't have to watch the whole film. And he's hilarious. Ah, <laughs> oh, bees, get off the fucking bike. <laughs> it's so wrong. It's like, what film did you think you were making, Nicholas? I think it feels like with Nicolas Cage, there was a bit where... A bit of his career where he was just allowed to be the caricature of Nicolas Cage and everything. Yes, and it and also it doesn't fit every film. So obviously the Coen brothers sat on him when they did um, Raising Arizona, and he's, he's he's wonderful in it. He's really really funny. That's the thing he can he can do comedy when it's the right when it's meant to be a comedy. <laughs> so yeah, the, the Wicker Man is it's unintentionally hilarious. It's, it's actually quite entertaining watching him. It's like have you seen this that clip of him on Morgan? Not sure. You absolutely have to see that. It's like he's he's plugging wild at heart, which again he's really good at. He's good in because David Lynch, he works in the Lynchian world because he's so over the top and everything in in in, in David Lynch is kind of over the top and weird. But he's he's on Wogan, plugging wild at heart, and he comes in clearly chemically altered, right? Um, he does like a backflip, and starts <laughs> throwing. He, he goes into his trousers. You think, what's he doing? And he pulls out either playing cards or money. And throws them into the audience. It's one of the. It is. I, I. I urge anyone that hasn't seen it to YouTube. It is hilarious. You won't believe what you're watching. 
Amazing. Yeah, I think Nicholas Cage definitely needs to be contained. And um, <laughs> and like <laughs> Nicholas Cage must be contained as another <laughs> podcast. <is>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the irony is, he's called Nicholas Cage. Yeah, he's yeah. not called Nicholas Uncaged. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although he's called Nicholas, so he's not wearing any pants. So you know. <laughs> yeah. And what would your song choice be? Yeah, I've got I've got quite broad ranging musical tastes are kind of mm-hmm. bit of a mixed bag so I, I tend to quite like different kinds of music but um i hate nearly everything cliff richard's done yeah not yeah. everything i like carrie at the uh, carrie and wide for sound stands up actually but it's, it's when he comes out with one of his christmas ones yeah and you can smell the desperation you can absolutely smell the desperation uh, 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 uh and it's complete kind of like, mistletoe and wine is one of the worst songs ever written Definitely. Some of the worst lyrics. But for me, the worst offender was the Millennium Prayer. Do you remember when he did this? He he took the words of the Lord's Prayer and he set it to Old Lang Syne. Yeah. Uh, and what made it work? Because he, he went on, he was talking about it on a TV show. And he says, um, yeah, no one's done this before. I said, yeah, Cliff, because it doesn't fucking work. Yeah. The words don't scan. But it was the sheer arrogance. Because he was speaking very arrogantly about how we've done this and we've done that. It's amazing. It's, no, it's not. And also, it's really cynical. You know, okay, maybe the money went to charity, but it's how cynical every Christmas, not anymore, because obviously he's a bit disillusioned now, but Mm. it used to be like, you know, it used to be the simile was as inevitable as a Christmas cliff single. He was desperately getting them out there and the quality was not there. Um, But if I was going to actually, I think my least favorite song is probably It Wasn't Wasn't Me by Shaggy. Okay, yeah. Um, Yeah. Because uh, it's it's a moral cesspit. It's... (laughs) It's a guy singing a jaunty song about being caught having sex with his neighbor and how he should get out of this and having Shaggy on his right shoulder saying, deny it, deny it, deny it. It's horrible. You know, someone had that idea. Oh, I'm going to write a song about having sex with the with the girl next door uh, behind my girlfriend's back and trying to deny it. And a kind of uncle figure saying, see, it wasn't you, deny it, deny it. Thought, yeah, that's a three-minute song. That's got a be- beginning, middle, and end. Um, but I won't make it like a kind of an angsty Nick Cave thing. I'll make it like a poppy cod reggae thing. That's the way to go with that. Uh, and with a quite a sweet, melodious lyric and Shaggy giving his in the background. And yeah, someone, the number of decisions that went into that becoming a global smash, lest we forget, um, actually sickens me. It actually sickens me. Um, cause I, it's weird because when you hear a song like that and it is poppy and it's light and it's, you know, it's not my cup of tea, but you know, it works as a melody, but then you actually drill down into the lyrics. It's a bit like, do you remember the thong song by Cisco? Oh God. Yeah. Okay. It was same sort now, of time, wasn't it? Yeah. It's a great song. Don't get me wrong. It's a brilliant song. Right. But if you didn't understand English and you heard that song full string arrangement with a fucking key change, <laughs> you would think it was about the civil war or something or an alien invasion. <laughs> And then you listen to the lyrics, it's about pants. And the thing is, it's not even a metaphor. It's not even figurative. It's literally about women's pants. Yeah. You know, the number of times I listen to Blue Suede Shoes, which is a great song, right? The number of times I listen to that song thinking, what do the Blue Suede Shoes represent? Is it Vietnam? No, it's about him saying, don't step on my fucking shoes. And it's three minutes of that, which I find <laughs> hilarious. But at least that was a throwaway pop song. The yeah. thong song is a full orchestrated like I say, with the key change. And it's literally about skinny ladies' pants, which is just ridiculous. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I think um, 
with the, it wasn't me. It's just so sort of indicative of the sort of mentality of a man who does just you know casually cheat on his partner, where you know his his mate's advice is just like, oh, just say it wasn't you, and he's like, but yeah. but she caught me on the counter. She caught yes. me in the bedroom. <laughs> And he's like, no, no, I'm, I'm, no. But what I'm saying, mate, is just say it wasn't you. And so, like, yeah, yeah. But she caught me in the shower. So, like, yeah, but you're not hearing me, mate. And it's like, yeah. oh my god, this conversation. Like, what the fuck are you? But she even playing? caught him on camera. So, it's, yeah, it's like, you know, she's got pictures. Like, mate, say it wasn't you. I can't be any clearer. Like, I'm repeating it constantly. It's the worst form of gaslighting. It's yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah. And and also, it's like if I had been unfaithful and I'd told a friend about it, I wouldn't expect him to say what you like. Mm. I I need a moral compass in that situation. I need someone to tell me, do you know what? You fucked up, do the right thing. Yeah. But this, yeah. this whole denial thing, honestly, it's it's hilarious that it was so successful as a song. Yeah. Exactly, you know, I'm not pretending that people listen to lyrics, you know? I mean, I remember when um, Ice Cube, Today Was A Good Day, was, you know, I love Ice Cube. I mean, mm. uh, you know, I loved NWA and I love Ice Cube. But I remember Steve Wright, I think he was in the morning at this point, so... 93 wasn't it when or 92 when today was a good day came out mm. and um he played it in full and there's a whole bit in there about him having anal sex it was part <laughs> of his, his day he was pulled up a big fat jammy and i killed the hootenanny and it's basically <laughs> about you know one of the things is is having anal sex with this girl with a large booty and that i don't think people listen to lyrics a lot of the time you know it's which is kind of fine but kind of isn't mm. so you know um it is Slightly embarrassing, uh, you know, for the human race that it wasn't wasn't me was a global smash that year. The the good thing about it being a global smash is that um, it got so big that there was a response record. You know, when people do like a reply. Oh yes, yes. and they did it with like you know there was no scrubs and I think there was like you yes, know, no there was pigeons. Like, yeah, no yeah. pigeons. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. so I've got on seven inch a response record from the ladies' point of view, and it's got this uh, dancehall singer called Lady Saw who uh, who's amazing. And every time the singer goes, I caught him in the bathroom, she just replies, son of a bitch. And it's <laughs> so, and it's like, exactly. So it's like, if you like the sort of vibe of that tune, but we hate the words, it's really good because you put it on and it's just like, I caught him in the bedroom, son of a bitch. And I caught him in the bathroom, son of a bitch. And it's the like, correct response. Yeah, it's yes. great. So it's like, it's really, um, it's really satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, I'm going straight on to bloody Spotify for that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, okay, well, listen, I'll tell you what, because you made such a good argument for uh, Shaggy, but I think that Thong Song has such an honourable mention and fits so neatly into the same mould. I'm going to give you like a special kind of like uh, limited edition single that has Thong Song as a B-side there so that, so that you can sort of be constantly spinning it over and, and trapped and sort of... Oh, I tell you, do you know what? I hope Cisco listens to this and finds <laughs> out that that huge orchestrated number is a B-side. I really, really hope he knows about that. <laughs> I hope Cisco listens to this just because I'd love to. I'd love to receive the email saying, "By the way, Cisco's a huge fan." <laughs> and, um, and have you heard, have you heard the response to Thong Song, where the thong is actually a metaphor for Vietnam? <laughs> <laughs> okay, now finally, the island is overrun by the biggest dick of all the animals. Which yeah. animal is it, and why? Oh, it's going to have to be the seagull. Yes, good choice. I now realise now that I've got quite a strong moral streak, but seagulls don't seem to have any kind of moral compass, do they? Mm. They don't seem to contribute. Um, they're loud. They're, they're they're basically like skinheads. They're not good skinheads. I mean, you know, because skinheads used to be good. Remember, like back yeah. in the day. 
Well, not like the ones who like reggae and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So seagulls aren't the reggae liking skinheads. Mm. They're the screwdriver liking skinheads. And mm. you know for a fact that's what they listen to if they listen to music. But just the arrogance of them. Um, they don't give a shit. They'll. I mean, we um, we went on a holiday to, to uh, with the family when the kids were younger. Uh, went to to uh, Lake Garda, and we did a wee day trip to Venice, mm. uh, having a lovely day in Venice. Did the gondola ride, did all that stuff, just an absolute gobsmacked awe at the beauty of the place. Like every street, every back street was like a Michelangelo painting. It was beautiful, and then we were just heading back to get our water bus back, and um, this. Fucking seagull dive on my son's chicken sandwich and traumatized him. <laughs> and uh, I think, you utter prick. You utter prick. Yeah. They're, they're noisy. They're, they're not helpful in any way. They're, they will peck you. They, they know no fear in the same way that foxes are getting that way. You know, foxes used to be quite sleek and, well, you, you, you're from Leicester, so you are a fox. Yeah. Um, but foxes will, you know, now you see them, now you don't. But now they'll come to your barbecue with a fucking monocle and a plate. <laughs> you know, they're getting really, there's a there's a term in Glasgow, wide. It means that, that they're really, really kind of in your face now. Yeah. And seagulls, are, you know, they will come. I mean, you've seen the clips of seagulls working out how to, the pressure pads in Tesco's, and they'll mm. jump on it, and they'll open, and they'll take crisps, and they'll fuck off. So they're not stupid either. So they're really quite scary. They'll stare you out. They'll, they'll, they'll completely, they're not scared of anyone. And that's quite scary in itself, because they can do damage. Um, so I can't think of many redeeming features of seagulls. No, and they're big as well. Like I lived in Brighton, and you'd sort of go, you know, like you get off the train, you hear the seagulls, and you're like, "Oh, I'm home." And then ten seconds later, you go, "Oh yeah, I fucking hate these things." <laughs> yeah. And like, and like, you know, there's different kinds of seagulls. The ones in Brighton are the size of a wheelbarrow, and <laughs> like they're so aggressive. Like, you know, it's, there's enough food on the ground for them to eat, but they still have to, as you say, like snatch food out of people's hands. And also, what? And also, what the fuck are they laughing at? Yeah. What is so? What is so funny? Are they all watching Michael McIntyre DVDs? What? What? Why are they always laughing? I think they're just sort of telling each other about what they've done to humans that day. They're like, yeah. "Oh yeah, yeah, I got this four-year-old with a donut prick." <laughs> this comes back to sarcastic guy at the snowboarding. Yeah, you know, you know that. Yeah, like fucking retelling this. It wasn't enough that they did the damage. They've got to relate it to the pals later, yeah. which is just as evil, isn't it? I say, and on a desert island where you've just finally, oh. finally managed to get a fish out of the sea, oh. like seagulls just attack, and you know you can never leave leftovers lying around because they'll come and pinch it all. And <laughs> yeah, I think seagulls is an excellent choice, excellent choice. And I've got to say, you know, looking back at your your uh, choices throughout, they have been very strong. Um, you've made a very good case for all of your dicks on the island today. So um, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. And um, Sanjeev, where's the best place to sort of keep up to date with what you're doing at the minute? I don't really have like a like a website as such, but um, Fags, Mags and Bags, which is the Radio 4 comedy that I co-write with Donnie McCleary and co-perform with them as well. We've recorded series 10, count them. Actually, don't count them because I just told you. Um, <laughs> and that starts in February. But what they're doing is they're repeating series nine just now. So there's another three of them to go out and then that'll go straight into series 10. Um, so that's coming up. And I'm also, I've done my first murder mystery. I've done oh. my first murder mystery. I don't know why I'm doing this voice. Um, <laughs> but it's a thing called magpie murders. So magpies are quite scary as well, aren't they? Mm. Um, but this is a, a thing. I think it's on Britbox, which I don't have. And I need to get Britbox because 
Uh, it's got some really good stuff on there. Our Friends in the North is on there. Mm-hmm. Grange Hill from the start is on there. Wow. So I might have to shell out and get BritBox because this thing Magpie Murders is on it. And um, it's very interesting because it's it's a murder mystery, but it's told in two storylines, uh, two, two timelines, I should say, because it's about a, a, a mystery writer that gets killed. Mm. Uh, so that's the current day mystery, but also his book is unfinished when that's set in the 50s. So this, it's told in the two timelines. And because the writer uses characters from his real life, we all get to double up. So in, in the current, in the modern day storyline, I'm his lawyer who's dealing with his estate. But in the in the 50s, I'm a doctor that deals with the um, the, the hero of the book. So my mom's really happy. I'm a lawyer and a doctor in the same fucking production. <laughs> and that'll be on in February, I think. So yeah, that's nice. It. One. So loads coming up. Brilliant. Well, we'll keep an eye out for all of those things. And uh, yeah, just once again, thank you so much for coming on Desert Island Dixter. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. So there you go. Hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, as always, we'll be back next week with another wonderful guest. And if you would like to get involved with the podcast, then we're going to start Compact Dicks Up again, which is where you, the listener, can have your say and get involved. If you'd like to submit any people or things that you would hate to spend time with on a desert island, you can get in touch, dickspod.com slash contact, and uh, we will put it in Compact Dicks whenever we finally get our asses in gear and uh, bring it back again. Um, that's about it for me so I uh, just want to remind you that Desert Island Dicks is a sync clap production created by James Deacon produced and presented by me Dan Benedictus our editor is Chris Attaway we get social media support from Jason Leach and Chinsey Clinton and a special mention as always to Grand Mamster Flash and John Deacon thank you very much for listening and we will be back soon bye <laughs>